Man, I'm glad to see you all here tonight. We are actually in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18 tonight. If, if you want to follow along in the Bibles that are in the pews, it's on page 1225 of the Pew Bible, but it's also going to be on the screen, so you, know, you can just look at that if you want. Uh, we're in a parable that some of you may recognize, and uh, it may confuse you, uh, but we'll see. We'll talk through it a little bit. I'm excited to get through this tonight. It's uh, Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, page 1225, and it says this. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my accuser. For a while he refused. But later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice, so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. All right, I'm going to start off with a confession uh, that will certainly undermine my credibility as the preacher tonight, which is always a good way to start any talk. Uh, and this is the first time many of you have heard me say this, but whenever I get to uh, a scripture that I'm supposed to preach on and it focuses on prayer, uh, I get more nervous than I do excited. And uh, honestly, that's probably because I still have a lot of uh, baggage from a bunch of terrible youth sermons I heard growing up. Uh, and today's uh, parable was one of them that was used a lot. And whenever I heard this uh, parable talked about in any of those uh, terrible youth sermons, uh, I always end up feeling like it was uh, more bad news than it was good, right? And it was bad news for me because... Um, the way I figured it, I did not have a very high batting average on receiving from God what I was asking for. It seemed like a lot of what I asked for, I didn't get. And with this low batting average uh, as obvious evidence of my lack of faith, um, it always felt like parables like this were kind of the icing on the disappointment cake uh, for me. Most lessons that I heard on this subject where people talked about God and how to pray to God and how God answers prayer... Most of those uh, that I heard ended with an image of God that was somewhere in some kind of weird hybrid mix of God as Santa Claus and or vending machine for those who have an extra pocket full of faith and those whose name stayed off the naughty list. Now, there's a lot I don't know about God. Obviously, a lot I don't know about the mystery surrounding the creator of all things. I have as many questions as I do answers. I know I'm really setting up my credibility tonight, but uh, that, that is true. But I feel like I can say this positively. I do feel like I know for sure that if God only existed for my wish fulfillment, uh, we're in big trouble. Like we're all in real big trouble if that's what God is here for. So wherever we end up at the end of the sermon, we're going to look at this and some of the things that are misunderstandings about it and some of the challenges I found in it as I studied it this week. Wherever we end up at the end of the sermon... We cannot arrive at any kind of formulaic thing that ends in us uh, finding ways to manipulate God for what we want. 
It just can't be that. The fact is that when this story was originally told to the original audience, I think it was a funny story. I think it, people probably laughed out loud or at least smiled. It made them happy when they first heard it because it was set in a world that they recognized. They knew these characters, even though they were made up by Jesus. They knew who these kinds of people were. They lived in a world where someone like a vulnerable widow would have no one to advocate on her behalf. They know what that looks like. And they also lived in a world were the ones who should be looking out for that widow and protecting her, for the large part, couldn't be bothered to do so. They understood the mind-numbing frustration of a world where it seemed like the worst kind of people held the most power and gave the least care for those in need. This was their world. Some of you may be thinking in your head, that's kind of our world too, and maybe that's true. But they knew these characters. They knew who these people were. And if you know who these people are, if you know these kinds of people and you live in that kind of world, what could be more delightful than a story where you get to watch this unjust judge, this villain, get worn out by this widow? The one who has no power just wearing out the one in charge. To have him taken down by elementary school tactics that are as funny as they are effective. I say funny like funny when they're not being used against me every day by my kids, right? Every parent who's ever been on a road trip knows the tactic that the widow used here. Are we there yet? Are we there now? How much farther? Are we there yet? Now, Dad, are we there yet? How about now? Are we there yet? And then what was a normal parent works up the superhuman strength to just rip the steering wheel right off a moving car. This is a side note. This from me and not the Lord. I have actually found a cure to this problem, which is always answer the question with 20 minutes. That's what I do. You can ask me 50 times in a row, and I will say 20 minutes. It doesn't matter if we're going to nukes or we're going to New York. 20 minutes is the answer. And if you keep saying 20 minutes over and over again... Eventually, they stop asking. It works. Try it. We unjust judges still have some tricks up our sleeves, right? But today in this story, the widow resorts to these tactics. She resorts to annoyance. Annoyance. And the judge just can't take another round of it, right? His arm can only be twisted so far. His heart does not change, and that is important. In fact, one of the funniest parts of the story to me is that he is named as someone who doesn't respect God or care about people. And then when he talks to himself, his own inner monologue, he says to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, I mean, you've got to respect the guy at least is aware, right? She just keeps coming to me. She's going to wear me out. His heart doesn't change. He doesn't suddenly care more about justice, but he does want some peace and quiet. He reaches that moment that every person eventually reaches. We say yes just to stop the questions. I wish I wasn't that guy. I hate myself when I do it as a parent, but I do it sometimes. I'll say yes just to stop it, right? And don't get me wrong. I am not convinced by my child's pleas. My heart has not changed. They have not convinced me of the injustice that they are crying out against. I just need them to please be quiet. Please. And there's something I do know. I know that they can't keep asking for ice cream 
if their mouth is full of ice cream. It's a funny scene. It's intended to be a funny scene. But when we read it, especially with the little commentary that Luke gives us in the foreground, which is, this is what this parable is about. I, honestly, I kind of wish that wasn't there. If you're allowed to say that, that about the Bible, I like when the parables just are there by themselves and not explained ahead of time. But it begs a question as soon as you read this parable. It's a question that everyone probably in this room who has read this or heard it tonight for the first time asked upon hearing this parable. Wait a minute, where is God in here? Does this story mean that we have to annoy God in order to get God to care about our plight? Do we have to wear God down? Because that feels like the plain meaning of it, right? So let me start by what I believe is the answer to that question. Do you have to annoy God into caring about what's going on in your life? Do you have to wear God out before God will care? To that, I would answer with a resounding no. I don't believe that about our God. In fact, I would say that the one, one of the featured lessons of this parable is how much God is not like this judge. Right? This falls into the category of other teachings that Jesus does where he does like a greater than kind of thing, right? Jesus is fond of using this elsewhere. Which of you, when your child asks for bread, would give him a stone, right? And if you wouldn't do that, as evil and terrible as humans sometimes are, if you wouldn't do that, how much more would God not be like that? I think that's what Jesus is trying to lay out here in regards to this unjust judge. How much better is God than this? I believe God is unlike this unjust judge in every way. The core of our faith is we affirm a God that is deeply and irrevocably connected to us and to all of creation. We believe in a creator that is with us and within us while, having, uh, while being with us and also having God-like depth of love and God-like desires for justice. We believe in a God who weeps when we weep, who throws a party when we celebrate, we believe our pain is God's pain, our suffering is God's suffering, our celebrations are God's celebrations. We believe in a God for whom injustice stings just as deeply as it does for us. That's the God we believe in. We believe in a God also of redemption, a God who is setting about to do something about it, a God who is setting things right in ways unseen and seen, understood and mysterious. When will it happen? How will it all happen? I don't know that exactly. In this parable, it says quickly. What does quickly mean to the God of all the universe compared to me? I don't know. I don't have the answers to those questions. I don't have the timelines or the game plan. But I do believe that God is good, that God cares, that God is connected, and God is in the act of redeeming. And I believe that we are called to lean into this future redemption while living in the present brokenness of this world. This is all another way of saying that God is not the one in need of enlightenment or waking up here. And again, any lessons that we draw from this or any formulations of prayer that assume otherwise, I think, are misguided and paint a picture of God infinitely smaller than it should. Prayer doesn't inform God or enlighten God. God is God. We can't give God better ideas. The question we are left with in this parable is not whether or not we are going to be able to find a faithful God. The question we are presented with at the end of this parable is whether or not God will find any faith on earth. And of course, the faith that God seeks is located in this story's hero. It's located in the relentless, persistent widow. 
The world is not in need of a righteous and just judge. That is covered. The world needs more thoroughly annoying, hopeful people of faith. People who simply can't accept the world as it is being presented to them. The world doesn't need a new and better judge. The world needs more people who understand how broken this world really is. Those who see the world for what it is and refuse to settle for what it is. Those who cannot live comfortably in the injustice. Those who won't shut up or rest until things begin to look and operate the the way the God of love intended them to look and operate. The world needs more people of faith so annoyingly hopeful about what is possible that we wear the world out on it. They will know who we are by what we won't shut up about. That's what I think this is about. We need to look to the persistent widow, to her undying hope and persistence towards what, how the world should be. My fear is, though, that on average we as Christians may be annoying to people. We may be endlessly talking, but I just don't know we're annoying about the right things. So this week, um, I got to spend a few days in Kansas. I know you're all jealous. I make that joke, but like I was the only person from Mississippi at this conference I went to, and every time I said I was from Mississippi, I almost got the, oh, well, good for you for getting out for a couple days. (laughs) So I think Kansas might feel that way about us, to be honest with you. (laughs) As a lot of you know, my kind of during-the-week job is with the uh, the Pine Belt Foundation. It's It's a charitable foundation. We work in all kinds of different areas of charity, and so this was a conference for people who do exactly what I do all over the country. And it was awesome. I I had a great time. I spent a a few days with people from all over the place uh, who are in the same kind of charitable field as I am, although they live in very different kinds of areas. I made many new friends, uh, particularly one group of like 12 to 15 who we hung out a lot, most of them from California. Made a bunch of new friends. We talked a lot. We nerded out on our field. um, And I was just so moved and impressed by how committed they were to the common good. They're doing amazing things all over the place. They're actively working to solve the problems of poverty and hunger and homelessness and inequity, racism, uh, education. They're all in very challenging places doing very challenging, good work. They're committed to spending every day trying to make the world a more just place. It was great. I I was just motivated just being around them. And I enjoyed my time, and I like meeting new people, and I like hearing about their lives and what they're doing, and uh, I like those kind of initial hangouts you have with people. Those are always fun. But I always run into one major problem, and that's happened to me for the last 20-something years. As much as I love those conversations, as much as I love learning about new people, always, a few minutes into the conversation, uh, someone inevitably asks more about what I do for a living and what I studied in school and those kind of things, and eventually... I have to, I'm I'm compelled to admit I'm a pastor. It's just one of the biggest conversation killers you can possibly do. In fact, if if you're one of those people that doesn't want to talk to the person next to you on the plane, as soon as you sit down, down, you should just turn to him and say, oh, by the way, I'm a pastor, and watch how fast the earbuds go in. (laughs) Now, I have no problem owning this reality. I love my job. I love doing this. 
but it always changes the tenor of the conversation in one way or another. It's always the proverbial needle scratch on the record. Now, in the South, in the Bible Belt where we're at, it usually changes the tenor kind of in a almost more positive or reverent direction, right? Uh, and I'll go ahead and confess something to you. Uh, you get treated better in the South when people find out you're a pastor. People all of a sudden will be nicer to me in the middle of a conversation. Um, the best is if someone's just told like an off-color joke or something, and then they ask, and then you really see everyone like hide the beer and freak out, right? But, <laughs> but I might get my meal paid for or something like that. I'm not aiming for that, but people kind of show some deference and respect to people in the South if they're a pastor. It just happens. I had a discount golf membership about 15 years ago because I was a pastor. I don't know how that makes sense in the kingdom of God, but it worked for me, and I wasn't going to say no, far be it for me to say no to the Lord's blessings, right? But, <laughs> but there's a very different kind of needle scratch when you're sitting at a, at a table of 10 people who are not from the Bible Belt, none of whom um, claim to be a part of any kind of faith tradition at all. And it was almost universally shocking to everyone I was talking to who was at least somewhat enjoying uh, my presence, which is shocking in and of itself. But it really was confusing to people to hear me admit that I was a pastor and I was doing the kind of work that we all do. People genuinely were trying to reconcile those two things. That may sound weird to us because of where we live, but it happened many times in the last few days to me. The deeply sad thing to me was that most of them couldn't imagine that I might be interested in solving those same problems that they're working on every day because of my faith and not in spite of it. I almost always hear something along the lines of, oh, interesting, and I mean, I know Jesus was into this stuff, but I, I didn't know Christians were. It's a fair critique. And I know it might sound a bit like hyperbole because we live in the Bible Belt and Christianity is ubiquitous here and you can't run for dog catcher if you're not a deacon. But we are in a different world here. We are in a bubble that does not exist other places. And I grew up in South Florida and so I can attest to it. Um, but I think I realized this last week, I've been here long enough now that I'm forgetting. I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, particularly after this week, if I couldn't before, that we are not known for what I would hope we would be known for outside this bubble. The impression that most that I encounter outside the Bible Belt have is that they would have to sacrifice their desire to be more loving and more gracious and more accepting and more just if they became a Christian. They're at odds with each other. We may be annoying in the world on average, but we're not annoying because of our unrelenting hope and how the world can look and how we can take care of the most vulnerable. Of course, I also know uh, that most of those outside our bubble do not really know those inside our bubble. That's the way these bubbles tend to work right now. I know uh, from my uh, life here and from the work I've done, how much is done uh, for justice because of Jesus I know how many people, whether conservative or liberal or the quiet group that's in between, are doing amazing things all around this state where I have been able to see it, and they're doing it because of their faith. 
I know there's probably not a single food pantry or clothes closet in this state that isn't faith-based in some way. And if they all disappeared tomorrow, we'd be in big trouble. I've worked with a lot of them. I know that. I know how often faith in Christ undergirds the work of justice and charity for so many people. I get it. It's true. And I know that our culture and our politics have gotten so divisive and isolating that we no longer really know each other in this country. We just know caricatures of those that we don't hang around. This is true. That colored the conversations I had this week, for sure. I hope I did something to move the needle on that. However, there is something striking about the fact that every person was surprised that I talked to. I had a disturbing thought. I was trying to think of where else would I go where that happened. The following might be hyperbolic. I don't know. But for me, there's something striking about what I feel like is true, which is that there'd be less people, to find, less people surprised to find out I was a pastor if I went to a Klan rally than this nonprofit conference in another place. I genuinely think that's true. Maybe I'm wrong. But it points to something. Again, we will be known for that which we, with that which we are most relentlessly annoying about in this world. It can be partisan politics. It can be the nihilism that that inevitably produces. We can be endlessly annoying in our rigidity and in our self-righteousness, or perhaps in our dogged pursuit of being in charge and making the rules for everybody else. But I think we all know we should be a little more like this persistent widow. We should be so hopeful that this world just wants us to shut up about it already. We should be so committed to some place that is better for those who are most vulnerable that the world is made uncomfortable by our presence. We should spend so much time calling attention to how the world could treat those that they're treating poorly, to the outcast, to the oppressed, that no one feels like they can live life as it is without consideration. The people of Christ should be so relentless in our pursuit of the just and merciful world God designed for us to have that we're no longer able to be confused for anything or anyone else. We should be wearing this world out. And if we did, perhaps then, when Jesus surveyed this angry, embattled, broken, divisive world, he would have no problem recognizing the persistent voices and work of the faithful. Maybe he would find faith here after all. And if we are consistent, if we don't stop, if we are as annoyingly hopeful as this persistent widow, maybe, who knows, maybe even this world will occasionally serve up a scoop of ice cream or two just to shut us up for a second. Let's pray.